Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. The United Nations is of the view that HIV and AIDS can be, well, at least AIDS and HIV-related deaths can be ended in the next seven years. Seven years. That's how long they think we need to be able to put an end to it entirely. They argue that it's possible if you have the right political leadership that actually wants to get it done. What does that mean? It means following the data, the science, and the evidence and tackling the inequalities that holds back progress. It also means enabling communities and civil society organizations in their role in the response. South Africa, we have a long history with communities and civil society organizations uh, playing their role in ending HIV and AIDS, or responding to it at least. So this UN AIDS report contains data and case studies which highlights that ending AIDS is a political and financial choice. You'd recall it was, must have been around 2012, 2013, maybe even 14. I remember South Africa was praised for doing well in its response to HIV and AIDS. In fact, didn't the United Nations appoint Jacob Zuma at some point as its leader or chairperson or rapporteur on the global response to HIV AIDS, saying that there are lots and lots of lessons to be learned from South Africa? Uh, what are those lessons? Were they implemented? Because we know South Africa to be backtracking on some of its efforts in, in, in stopping the spread of HIV. I mean, we heard those stats not so long ago on World AIDS Day. Um, and, 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 and how devastating it is specifically for young women between the ages of 16 and 24 in South Africa, that being the biggest demographic that contracts HIV. Yeah, this report clearly is a very, very important report. Munrabisi, thank you so much for your time this evening. I really, really do appreciate it. Welcome to Night Talk. The United Nations is of the opinion that in the next seven years that we can end the spread of HIV and AIDS. It says that it is all about following the data, the evidence, and taking serious tackling the inequalities that exacerbate the conditions that enable the spread of HIV and AIDS to continue. What are we learning from this report? Um, thank you so much, uh, Olivia, and I want to greet all your listeners on SAFM. Uh, indeed, <clears throat> what you are raising is correct. Um, the report is telling us about the progress that has been made and of which 2030, it is still possible. You'll appreciate that uh, as a country, we're doing very well up until, you know, the disruption of COVID, of yeah. which now led to the divergence of resources. At some point, that took us a little bit back, but now we're trying to reconnect with that trajectory of ensuring that we end HIV by 2030. Yeah. And I was going to ask it because I think it must have been around 2013 or 14. Where, where Jacob Zuma was appointed by uh, the United Nations uh, body on HIV-AIDS uh, to spearhead or to lead the global response to HIV-AIDS because South Africa was uh, a positive case study at the time, perhaps the best case study in the world. Um, and recent uh, numbers are telling us that we're making reversals to some of those gains that we've made. You say those started happening around COVID, but what are some of the big lessons of our own achievements domestically that we can export to the world? And of course, 
uh, it didn't come easy. Treatment Action Campaign had to fight hard, for instance, for the proliferation of ARVs and for uh, social subsistence uh, to be provided to uh, poor people who have contracted HIV-AIDS because you can't, for instance, live in poverty and be expected to stay committed to your, your ARV treatment uh, uh, regimen. And so there's been a lot of social responses to a health crisis. Um, and the world congratulated us uh, on some of those, uh, uh, you know, hybrid interventions. What are some of those key moments in, in, in our last, what say, let's say in the last 10 years in South Africa that we can use for the world to learn from? Um, okay, no, thank you very much for that question. Indeed, you are quite correct. In fact, I want to come, I want to put my response in a juxtaposition manner so that it can be able to cover both perspectives. The first perspective, I think it's something that we need to celebrate as a milestone, you know, in the, in the last 10 years, especially when you are mentioning the former president, Jacob Zuma. I think around that time, we were able to effect science behind HIV and AIDS and be able to uh, justify really like to unpack you know um, the case of HIV uh, supported by uh, science and also that's when we were able to roll out as a country you know the bigger margin or rather you know in, in to, to intensify you know um, um, the rollout of antiretroviral like people were beginning now to have access to ARVs. So that's why we were yeah. able to be the best, in fact, to remain, uh, you know, the leading country in terms of providing, you know, ARVs as compared to other countries in the world. But on the other side, when I'm talking about now these retrospective gains that we are talking about today, it is that when we hit, we were hit by COVID-19, at some point you find that, you know, the resources had to be diverted into the response uh, towards, uh, you know, um, 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 uh, COVID-19, and then at some point, HIV response was neglected. That is why even now, if you can see, we are still seeing some of the numbers that are, are growing exponentially of new infections, of which we still have to do a lot as a country in terms of ensuring that we, we invest more on issues of, you know, HIV testing services, and then we roll out, you know, something called PrEP, which is pre- exposure prophylaxis, which these are, are preventative measures, post-exposure prophylaxis, and also vertical transmission, which it talks about, you know, a transmission between a mother and a child, uh, you know, where they transmit HIV. So we need to ensure that we scale up, you know, that intervention as well. And obviously the use of treatment as prevention. Those are, are some of the interventions that needs to be done. And also the U equals to U, which is undetectable and equals to untransmittable. So those are the interventions that need to be rolled out so that we are able now to circumvent, you know, uh, uh, you know, this exponential, uh, you know, uh, growth that we see with the new, uh, you know, uh, um, what you call um, HIV uh, amongst young people in particular. If every sexually active person were to go on to PrEP, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, as you say, uh, there would be no spread of HIV, right? But why are we not all on PrEP? Uh, is it expensive? Is it inaccessible? Is it a stigma thing? What's going on? Oh, the current challenge is right now is that it has been significantly, you know, under under marketed socially. And now as treatment action campaign, you are advocating for PrEP to be actually, you know, advertised to be, you know, made accessible to almost everybody. 
in targeting, you know, uh, you know, uh, areas of where, you know, marginalized people are. In fact, it's something that we're advocating that it should be, you know, easily accessible uh, in the local, you know, uh, clinics. So it's something that we are, we are trying to push very hard. Yes, it does indeed, you know, protect uh, people from contracting HIV as part of the mechanism to prevent HIV or the spread of HIV. So it's quite, you know, effective. The issue is not the question of being expensive, but it's a question of accessible. So we are trying to push government to ensure that they disseminate, you know, uh, uh, this particular preventative method so that people can be accessible and then people can be able to use it because it has been proven scientifically yeah. that it is indeed, you know, uh, you know, quite effective. Yeah. And and ARV accessibility to those who are HIV positive, um, are we at a 100% uh, provision thereof or is there still work to be done? There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Yes, you know, government is trying by all means, but however, there are other structural challenges, particularly at the facility level. Uh, you find that when people have missed their their date to come and collect their medication. Issues like stigma, issues like discrimination, issues like bad stuff attitude, whereby people will be chastised for merely missing you know, their date or rather their appointment to come and collect medication. So those are some of the barriers that we are trying to deal with and advocate that at least they, should, they need to be repealed because they are, they are equally unconstitutional. Therefore, some of the elements that need to be addressed, it is within you know, the clinical, you know, staff that still subject people to inhuman conditions or rather, if I may use, a, you know, a different term to say, to uncalled for or rather unpalatable, uh, you know, barbarism, if I may put it that way, because it is inhumane to, to only discriminate people living with HIV when they have to go and access medication. So yeah. those are some of the issues. Then on rare cases, you find that there will be stock outs. So we are calling upon government to ensure that they guarantee that the stock should be there in the facilities for people to be initiated to to art, as we call it in terms of its acronym, which yeah. antiretroviral therapy. Yeah, and 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 the social support uh, that is necessary for that, right? That's to say that poor people on ARVs, for instance, who are unemployed, may not be able to afford food that is necessary to be able to remain on ARVs. Um, that yes. is something that South Africa has been very clear about supporting, so much so that social welfare grants um, are accessible by people who are HIV positive in South Africa. But I'm not sure whether that's the case the world over. Is there a movement the world over to tackle, as the report calls, the inequality-related problems uh, in HIV and AIDS? Yes, you are quite correct. Uh, in fact, I will start here at home. As you'll be aware that the economy has not been growing and equally so people, you know, can't afford to buy food. If you look at the impact of Ukraine and Russia conflict, it is impacting on commodities are very high. Even those who are accessing uh, grants in terms of the SRD, uh, 350 rands, is no longer affording to buy, you know, the, the, the basic, you know, food for people to take their medication. That's the first part. The second part, if you go to uh, section 27, subsection 1A, B, and C of the, you know, of the constitution, which is, you know, um, uh, the constitution, of course, which is a supreme document, at, you know, at, 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 at that clause at B, it talks about, 
the state has to to play a pivotal role in ensuring that people who cannot afford to buy food at least should be provided with a a mitigating intervention. In this regard, we'll talk about food parcels, but the question is, is the state able to play that particular role efficiently? The answer will be no. There are still challenges. Apart from that, you find that people cannot you know, afford basic food in the shelves as a result of the Ukraine issue that I've just, you know, outlined. But if you go abroad, you'll appreciate that, in fact, post-COVID-19, most of the countries in terms of their economies are still resiliently and obviously uh, gradually trying to adjust because the economies have contracted as a result of that. Therefore, I will will accept that people... Uh, uh, you know, worldwide, depending on the strength of the economy and depending on which part of the world are you at. But if you are talking about the developing countries, including, you know, countries that are in Africa, at some point, the question of access to food becomes a problem, of which then it bears a very critical hindrance for people to adhere to their medication yeah. because the economy has contracted. I yeah. think I think that that would be the case. Night Talk. Giving you depth and texture to the conversations that matter. Monday to Thursdays, 10 p.m.